Hey, this is Brad. We know there are a lot of things competing for your time. However, if you've taken the time to listen to our podcast and you like what we're doing, we'd love it if you would subscribe, review, or rate us. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and uh, we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at Brad at hospitality.com. So Africans and Americans of a certain age that spent time in New York City in the 70s and 80s would be familiar with the club, restaurant, and social scene that had migrated south from Harlem to the Upper West Side. Numerous Black-owned venues were jumping with live entertainment, food, and drink. Most nights of the week, it was live. It was happening. Packed on weekends, standing room only crowds spilled and sometimes stumbled out to the street at 4 a.m. to double park cars or brisk walks home to Park West Village, brownstones, and or apartments dotted throughout the West Side. However, if you were not ready to go home, the after hour spot on 105th Street and Central Park West could take you into church hours on Sunday morning, necessitating a hand over your eyes to shield the morning sun as you adjusted on your way home. My longtime friend, Yvonne DeRay, has written a book from her personal experience chronicling that period while telling the story of her rise in the advertising world as a copywriter to working with major ad firms, a career that also included spending seven years in Milan as a copywriter with a global international agency while weaving in a love story with none other than former Upper West Side resident, perhaps the greatest jazz musician of all time, Miles Davis. As an author, Yvonne has written articles for Oprah, New York Magazine, the New York Observer, and the New York Times. She also writes along with her sister. They have a website about etiquette and a blog on etiquette and civility. She gives workshops on those subjects. Most recently, Yvonne joined Audible as a member of their editorial team. The book is titled Quite the Contrary, and it is available on Audible Books. I have to tell you, I listened from start to finish, and it is beautifully written, expertly narrated, including the narrator's version of Miles Davis' voice-switched you have to hear and you have to appreciate if you've ever heard Miles speak. It's very effective. So here we go, Yvonne Durant, welcome. And I also want to give a shout out to your twin sister, my whole world, Yvette. Yvonne, what's happening? Welcome. It's, this is happening. This wonderful thing is happening right now. It's great to have you. So we kick things off with our short order questions. So let me fire a few at you. What is on your musical playlist these days? What are you listening to? I don't listen to anything current. I listen to things that are encouraging and uplifting. Carmen McRae is always there. I love Jessica Loving early in the morning, especially when she talks about the world. It wouldn't be half as sad, half as bad if everyone just had just a little bit of loving. I love that. Interestingly, a couple of years ago, I had to have Brenda start in Spanish and English, uh, which if you can believe, whatever. I like that inspiring stuff. Bill Withers, anytime. Some classical, can't recall which one right now. I love Miles's Porgy and Bess. And I love what he did with Time After Time. Beautiful. These days, I'm listening to books all the time. Okay. I yeah. have to, as an editor, I have to. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of your downtime have been music in your ear, but it's, now it's books. Now it's books, yeah. 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 Listening to a lot more podcasts that were for exercise for me, uh, music was always part of my journey while I exercise. But now I'm finding I like to mix in a little learning, a little podcast. I listen to your book a couple of times at the gym, and I find it's a good space for that. Yeah, actually listening has, it's part of my lifestyle. I will go to the gym, even if I don't feel like it, because it gives me 45 minutes to listen. Right. And at the same time, it's a win-win situation. I'm staying in shape. 
mentally and physically learning something new. Yeah. It's perfect. It's all good. All right. So morning beverage, what, to, what kicks things off for you first thing in the morning? What do you drink? I was drinking iced tea with lots of lemon, but it was affecting my voice, which is already scratchy. So sometimes just water. Last couple of days, I've been ordering in carrot, apple juice with ginger in it. Water's my go-to. Good one. All right. So I know you're a, you're a New Yorker through and through. Tell me your favorite New York City neighborhood. I love Chelsea since it's become a center for art. I, I really like it. I, I like where I live on the upper um, east side. It, it's sterile. But I know what I'm getting. I love the pristine brownstones. I don't live in one. I live in a pre-war building. And what else do I like? I never was fully comfortable on the west side. I, I was missing an aesthetic there. I like beautiful neighborhood. But Chelsea, while it's not gorgeous, the galleries, I mean, to live around all that art is, to me, a pretty exquisite. One of the things that I love about the city, the people change, but the buildings tend to remain. You can just walk up and down those streets and take in those beautiful buildings and that architecture that just is timeless and uh, takes you back or takes you forward, but that remains. Right. How about, I know you're foodie. How about a local restaurant that, uh, that you love? There's a, a Peruvian restaurant that is always crowded. It's called Mission Ceviche. And that's become a neighborhood favorite. I've never seen a place. There are always people, even in cooler temperatures, if there's no room inside, they're outside. I also, there's a simple sushi place I go to. We have a Seymour's now on the Upper East Side. And that's sustainable fish. And it's so nice to go into a restaurant, especially in the Upper East Side, and they're serving porgies. Okay, they're not fried up. But they, it's well, and it, it, they're taking the, the, all those bones out of the porgies. Well, they do it all for you. And then it comes with three vegetables. So I like food combining. So protein and vegetables, that's a very good food combination. So I like that place a lot. Tell me the last great meal that, that you had, either out at dinner or one you made for yourself. Or Actually, last great meal, I was in Houston this past weekend celebrating the birthday of my other mother. I have several mothers. I'm high maintenance. And she comes to Louisiana and I've had my gumbo fix for the whole year. I'm good. That's a good one. Okay. Let's jump in here. So where are you as we speak? Are you in New York? I'm in New York. I'm in my apartment. I, I wanted to do this from the office. We're reopened now and the conference rooms on all up snuff. The designs are beautiful. I work in a beautiful environment, downtown Newark. We have a cathedral on campus and we have a building. And so we're back in the main building and it's state of the art. Nice. I always like to ask, especially these days, given the, the craziness of the world, how you're doing. So how, how are you holding up? I know this is a busy time for you to be released this book, but how are things? How do you feel? I'm feeling ecstatic about the book. These are heady times for me. I feel the last two years is for the rest of the world have been very difficult at times. You just didn't have that human contact when you needed support. We, I couldn't say to my friends and they, but meet me around the corner or let's get together or I need a hug. None of that. But right now I'm feeling much better and very excited about the book. I'm combing the internet at night because there are these sites that where you can download for free. So now that I've told the world that I've report them to the lawyers and, and then just reading found sites that know something about my book, that, that's kind of cool. And I work in technology, so I've become quite savvy too. So are you saying that there are sites that are illegally downloading your book? It's just people will find a way. Yeah. So I just take note and send them in to the people at Audible. All right, so we're going to get into the book for sure. But before we do, I want to touch on your interest in etiquette and civility. It really, really strikes me, especially given what we've all gone through these last couple of years where it's been anything but civil. And uh, etiquette has been something that has certainly not been exhibited by some of the people who we you know, see the most on television, our political leaders yelling at each other. So I, I wonder with someone such as yourself who pays attention to those kinds of issues, how the last few years have, have 
upset with you. I'm sorry to say that we're still missing an etiquette. But Yvette and I had dance lessons, dance school every Saturday. And part of that used to be, quote, charm school. Back in the day, people actually went to charm school. And part of that was just learning how to say hello and engaging in conversation, basic table manners, how to walk, how to sit down, all that. But these days, I don't know if people even understand what etiquette is. And, and I'll tell you that when I lived for seven years in Milan, that was my finishing school. I learned so much about dining. I remember I was at a dinner party in a very nice area in Milan. And after the food was good, and I said in Italian, because I wanted to show them, I knew how to say, I am full in Italian. And it went so silent. My best friend was sitting there and said, what if I said wrong? We don't say I'm full here. That's not how we look at food. I said, what should I say? Because I'm full. Just say, I'm fine. This is delicious. So whenever I hear someone say I'm full, they don't know, and it's not a crime, but Things like that, how to sit at the table. Like I was saying, why do you put your two hands on the table in Europe? And it's because you always have to know what's in people's hands. You always have to know. So when you're eating here in America, what's that the left hand is usually in the lap, which is very odd to me now. Like things like that, but just every day, like the internet is not encouraging when it comes to etiquette. People don't understand there's certain things you can write in an email that don't translate like when someone uses please a lot in an email. Sounds like you're okay. It's interesting. And, it, and it's nuanced in some cases, like the, the Italian, the difference between saying I'm full and saying I'm fine. One sounds a little bit more like you enjoyed the meal. The other sounds like you, you ate with a purpose of just being full. But I, I also listened to an interview that uh, one of you was talking about and it so resonated with me because my father had this pet peeve about the response, what? Uh, to this day, if ever I catch myself saying what, when someone says something to me, my father's voice is there immediately. But it's those kinds of basic lessons that set you up for just tuning into what's important in terms of how you communicate with folks. Exactly. Yeah. That what thing. And friends will say what? It's like, did you just say that? Let, let's touch on the internet. It's kind of cliche. It's not what you say, but how you say, it, how right? You say and, and through text and email, it is different, but the intention is behind your communication and emojis go a little bit of the way. If you like to use emojis, I happen to not uh, use emojis. What do you advise folks to be on in terms of making sure that the, your intent is received in the way in which you wanted it to, in terms of emails or texts. I think that you should think, how would you like someone to write to you? But then again, if you don't know any better, you wouldn't know to say, like, I got an urgent message a few weeks ago. You have not given me the information about, and it sounds accusatory, instead of saying, do you have the information? I, I think we're all such in a rush, she says, to get the messages just right away. Oh, let me fire back. And this is assumption. There's also an assumption that we're walking around with our phones and our hands all the time. Like a few days ago, a friend was going, well, I wasn't walking around looking for a text message. So I'd already left. And then I saw this message just happened to be scrolling through. I don't know what the answer is. I think we need to get some etiquette books. I think the way children are being raised these days, you get on the elevator, you say hello, and they don't say anything back. And the parent doesn't say, Yvonne just addressed you. I can understand you want, don't want your kids to be too friendly in this day and age, but a hello deserves a hello back, no matter what age. And eye contact. And I like the, what you what you mentioned also too, in terms of phrasing a, an outreach to someone via email, sometimes posing it as a question as opposed to an accusation. Almost. Exactly. Just softens exactly. it and uh, makes it easier to receive on the other end. So I like it. Yeah. And active listening. I think listening is just a lost art. We're always quick to get in our say that sometimes we forget that we, you know, need to give the other person a chance to finish their sentence and maybe have a reply based on what they just said, not what we were thinking and, and spitting that out immediately. Yeah, that's a big thing, listening. We, we have to learn how to listen. And I think in the last couple of years, we've lost a lot of us sitting in our homes, many of us alone, not interacting with other people. So you lose your skills. 
-hmm. You can actually lose them or you get sloppy. But listening is so important. How many times have I knee-jerked something because I wasn't listening? Right. right. I didn't hear them. Yeah. Was that, and just lastly on the subject, but was that instill you and Yvonne, you and Yvette at home by your parents, or was this something that you just naturally um, gravitated towards in terms of etiquette? Etiquette, our mother, our mother and father, my father, as I mentioned in the book, was this classy guy. Do not ask people personal questions. And and I'll go further. People will tell you everything you want to know if you listen. They'll tell you everything. And if you're that kind of person where people like to talk to, so my parents had a lot to do with that. And we were always told, and I heard people say, your children are so well-behaved. I can attest to that. I, I remember both you and your sisters for many years, always coming in, coming in the restaurant where I would see you primarily. And both of you were just always, you know, so well-mannered and polite and just always a joy. So let's talk a little bit about your writing. And I want to, for those, uh, that are listening, that are not familiar with the job of a copywriter at an ad agency. Do you mind just describing what that job entails and, and how you got interested in that as a career? Sure. As a copywriter, you are responsible for the copy in an ad. That doesn't mean your art director can't come up with a good headline, but it's pretty much the copywriter's job to come up with headlines, and then the body copy. But before you put anything down on the paper, you have to have a concept. You just can't write a, a catchy headline. It needs a concept. So you work with your art director, you work with your account people. What is the concept? What are we trying to project in this ad? What is the objective? And then you sit down and you start writing and rewriting. I believe, as I was taught in school, copy isn't written, it is rewritten. And you keep honing it until you, and everyone like you're nodding and you get the nod. When you have the right headline or the right, write anything creatively, you, you get that nod. I first was interested in advertising unwittingly, really, because I used to play store with my uh, brother and sister and I would do the advertising. And the first ad I remember to date myself is for an aspirin, a headache pill. A woman was with her mother and the mother wanted to help her. And the woman says, mother, please, I'd rather do it myself. That was what people walk around saying, mother, please, I'd rather do it myself. And the product was always up to you. So I would do the ads found store. We'd take a table, get stuff from the kitchen, put it on the table. Yvette used to stock it. And my brother was the customer because we boss him around. And then, but I would do the advertising. So make sure you buy this bread today. Because that was my take on advertising. And I later learned it could be better than that. Yeah. These days, obviously, there are big budgets and you think about Super Bowl ads and, and all that goes into creating those kinds of commercials. And sometimes they're effective, but other times, Yvonne, the message, I'm not even sure what the product is. The commercial is so hyper-produced and trying to be extra clever. But what is, what's your take on where the advertising world is today in terms of that, that uh, kind of commercial that we all watch on television and scratch our heads or, or resonate. Well, in terms of Super Bowl commercials, everyone's trying to Super Bowl, out Super Bowl the commercials. And I think there's too much money. I think if you uh, took some of the budget away and the people would have to use their raw talents, good thinking, conceptualizing, great filmmaking is always a pleasure. And I'd rather see the money done there. It's, but the concepts, I, I find they're weak on concepts. I was disappointed by many of the commercials. It, it didn't get the nod. It's just over the top, overproduce. Who can overproduce the other or out right. overproduce? Right. So when you take your skill set home over years as a writing copy, you know, for the ad agencies and now find yourself in an editor's seat at Audible, where do the experiences dovetail? What do you bring from that world into this world that makes you effective at, uh, as an editor? Which is, by the way, a dream come true. Just want to make everyone clear. I'm not an acquisitions editor. Do not send, <laughs> not send your manuscripts to me. <laughs> if you're a good friend, talk to me. Um, I'll try to help. I, I write for the Audible blog, which is 
very intense and that there's so much content. And what I've learned, and I think most of my colleagues, you have to rewrite. First, I put something down. This is how I write in layers. First, I put it down. Then I read it over and I fine tune the sentences and then I season it. There's another word that can go there. I like to write with rhythm, which is what I used to do in headlines. You just need that extra word to bring the line to where you want it to be. So I do that when I write for the blog because they're essentially they're articles. And I've written on all kinds of topics. Now I'm writing something about truck drivers because they're big time listeners. And you just go over it again and again, and, and you can step away from your work if you have time. I try to give myself time because we do have deadlines. Walk away from it, then go back and say, mm, I can do better. I'm always trying to do better. It's interesting you mentioned truck drivers because I have read that also, that uh, podcasts and, and audible books are big for me. It makes perfect sense, right? They're on the road for sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. And to be able to listen to a book and, and have that entertain you while you're on the road. Podcasts are huge. They have the time to listen. All right, let's talk about uh, your book. And you know, it's always so nice to to read something that has been written by somebody that you know, because you realize there's so much more about them that you did not know. I had that experience, Yvonne, you know, in, in quite the contrary with, about you and, and Yvette's life growing up. And so much of that was, was new to me. As many conversations as we've had over the years, you don't really dive that deeply into a person's background. And, and to hear you tell your story that way or the narrator tell your story that way, I found really entertaining. So basically, you rise up through the ranks of the advertising world in an environment that we'll say was just was less than hospitable to women and in particular women of color. And yet through, you know, lots of grit followed through. And I really admired how attentive you were to whatever opportunities were presented to you. You never let one slip, at least in the, the ones that you illustrated in the course of, the, of your book. And when one person gave you a number to call the next person, you followed up and you would make those calls, even when it didn't leave it, right? You still kept track. Then ultimately taking the position in Milan with a global agency was kind of glad moment. Talk about when things began to click for you professionally and describe a little bit, if you will, just that process and, and then take us into that Milan experience. Cause I know that had to have been a pretty dynamic. Things started to click. Actually, when I did my, when I got into the training program, okay, I had to go through some humiliation, being treated like someone who couldn't read at a certain level. Like I flunked on purpose to reading tests. This is how they set up a writer for success. Your reading level has to be a little low. So that was crazy. But when I wrote my first ad, that was so exciting. It was a national ad. It was a black and white ad, one column wide. And it was for Tampax tampons. And I think I used the word, those period days aren't hassle days anymore. And the account customer said, well, I don't know if we can use hassle. They don't want women to think this is a hassle. And then he came back from the meeting. We sold it and we can keep the word hassle in it. So I, I was so proud because now you're a copywriter. When your ad is appearing in a major magazine, even though it's black and white cowl, you're a copyright. And I was so proud of that. I would have to imagine the, the, the language as you just mentioned, what you can get away with today, you couldn't get away with that. Oh, not at all. Not at all. You have to go through legal and you have to be so careful when you craft a piece of copy these days, because you don't want to offend anyone. And oh my Lord. Even in writing for the blog at Audible, we run everything through legal and make sure we're, we're on point. And you'd be surprised. I, I, mean, I did something recently. I know we can't say things like that. So you've worked through the years at various agencies in New York, and then you win this opportunity uh, to work in Milan. Was it like a how you like me now moment for you? Or what was that experience? Oh, that was that like, one? that was gangbusters. Even when I was a junior writer, I always wanted to work abroad because at that time we were having these global teams and they would come in from Italy and Paris and have major meetings. And I said, well, I want to do that. So first I was thinking of London. And then I met some people from Italian. One Italian man was on our Euro, Euro team, they called it. And then I went to visit and I said, this place feels very comfortable to me. 
And then I remember going, that, by the way, that's a whole nother book, my experience in Milan. Then I went back to my career director. I said, I'd like to live in Milan because I've been there on another vacation. I was on my friend's boat in a, a town in the Riviera. And I said, this could be every weekend. So I said, I'd like you to help me, the company. I said, I'm going to do it anyway. He said, we don't have any money, so we can't pay for your lessons. And I said, okay, okay. So I paid for my own lessons for a year and a half, private lessons. And then travel was much less expensive. I, I must have gone three times a year, one year. So I could practice. You know, I would leave my friend's apartment and go buy something at the grocery store. I remember one day in the afternoon walking in saying, good night. Instead <laughs> of good afternoon. That's how you learn though, by mistakes. So I, by the time I got to Italy, it was up as two years later, I was pretty good. I could order dinner, go shopping. I had to call a doctor once, had a sore throat. That was challenging because you don't want to say you have something else when it's just a sore throat. So I chose my words carefully. In describing your journey um, as a young girl in Brooklyn, drew this job in, in Milan, I really admire Yvonne, the way that you certainly, you highlight the challenges, some of the challenges that your parents had, I know your parents split and there was financial instability along the way. And the way that you discuss that in the book is as a matter of fact, but not as a, oh, we're not going to, there wasn't a heaviness to it. It was almost like this happened and then this happened. And then right. I had this because this happened and it, it was really just inspirational in that way that you can have these obstacles in front of you. And still, if you are on your course, there's just challenges and things for you to overcome. Was that kind of the way that it was for you? Cause from Brooklyn to where you ended up, that, that's a pretty good journey for, for an attractive brown girl like yourself. Yeah, it, it was the day I came home from school and learned that we were homeless. Now I shall never forget that day. I will never forget the, the expressions on, on people's faces or how stoic my mother was. And she says, I have all of your clothes because wardrobe was very important. Edette and I went to school the next day because they were winter finals, I think. First of all, we didn't have a home to stay in if we wanted to stay home. We couldn't stay at our neighbor's. She was so nice. And we had already studied. So of course we went to school. And we told some teachers that we don't have a place to live right now. That, that was an, an astounding thing to happen, to, to be homeless. I, I can't, you don't have an address. But I lived with my aunts and her kids. And we were out of the home for nine months. But we just, life went on. What, what were we going to do? Yvonne, having a twin, they're identical. When you look over at that person who you've known all your life who reflects yourself back at you, what does that do for you? I didn't have that growing up as an only child. And what does that do for you in terms of your own, how you identify yourself and how secure you are within your own identity? Does that help in that regard to have someone that close to you that, that looks like you? No, it doesn't. Yvette and I are professional twins. We've done some commercials and, and ads and magazine spreads as twins. And, and we're always surprised when twins, these are little people, they grown up, come in holding hands. Like we did the Wendy Williams show and one set of twins, they were calling each other boo. We worked really hard. Like I remember maybe we were 11 or 12. My mother was still laying out our clothes. And I think that maybe I said, I don't want to wear that today. So I think we were close to 12 when we stopped being identical twins in dress. So we've always refuted that. We were close, but never that close. We have other siblings, but we grew up together. Outside of being a twin, you're always compared. And some of that comparison can be so cruel and cold. And then people don't know it, but they think they're the first people who said to you, I couldn't tell you apart or you were at a party. Oh, I thought I just saw you across the room. You hear that a couple hundred thousand times in your life. And it's really hard to be pleasant. <laughs> yeah. I understand that. So let's talk about the Upper West Side. When did you move into that part of town, part of Manhattan? 
I remember it was in 1973, had a roommate. I was living on 16th between 5th and 6th, and it was not like it is now. It was not the cool neighborhood. As a matter of fact, I would escape and go to the village or either go uptown. I had a roommate on the Upper East Side, and the rent was going up to $275. Horrors. Oh, no, what are we going to do? She was a school teacher, made a little bit more than I. So, well, we have to find cheaper apartments. So she moved down to Sheridan Square and found a nice place for $250. I found a place in Park West Village. My manager at the time, the ad agency, the training program, she said, go up there because you'll impress them better because I don't think I made enough money. So it was a very lovely couple and they wanted to rent it. And I impressed them, well, I'm in advertising and I studied French and I studied Latin. And I got the apartment for $173 a month. Do you know how well I could live? My electric bill is 173 And that, that's how I began in Park West Village. And I didn't know how significant a place it was. Yeah, and again, obviously, that, that's my years growing up there. And that part of the story just really so resonated with me because I just feel like that part of Black culture in New York is maybe not underappreciated by those of us who experienced it, but certainly not well documented. I happened to find a friend of mine was doing a deep dive, Googling a few months ago and actually found an article in the New York Times from 1973 that quoted my father and quoted Mike McKell. Really? Um, Yeah, I know. I I didn't think that one existed. And, And even before my father purchased the seller in 1973, we would go, he would take me occasionally on a Saturday afternoon. They would play softball in the park. And he had a bunch of the guys would go over to Vic and Terry's, which was McKell's for McKell's. Right. And I'd sit around with the growing up guys. And I was a 12 or 13 year old folks like Jewel Willis, who eventually be opened oh, up. Jewel yeah. East Side and Sonny Bostic with people like Dr. Stanley Nelson, Dr. Leon Maitland, who you mentioned, Bote. Mm-hmm. Wells, these are legendary black folks that you don't often hear about unless we're talking about them. Obviously, Stanley, you hear about now because he you know, was nominated for an Academy Award this right. year documentary. Um, but a lot of these middle class and soon to be very successful black folks all coalesced in this neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Park West Village, as you mentioned, was I lived there. I lived in 784, but initially my dad and I lived 392, very familiar with, with that neighborhood. But I just could not get enough of your spot on account of that period. So if you would, if I talk about the draw to this part of town for you and set up what that neighborhood felt like to you during that period? I didn't, I wasn't that familiar with it. I knew people who lived up there. So when I moved in, I just realized I'm surrounded by people every morning, not that I never saw before getting up and going to work, the women that perfectly turned out. There was no casual Fridays. You left your house looking right. And I saw that. And then I learned who my neighbors were. Hugh Aquila was there. Peter Tosh was upstairs. Leo Maitland giving his wonderful salons on Saturday or Sundays, great food. He had a garland range put into his park. I'm saying, gee, how did he do it? Didn't have a dishwasher, but he had a garland range. And then I got to know people. There were doctors and lawyers and other advertising execs. Sandra Parks was a neighbor. And now she's this great event person and flowers, oil arrangements. It, it was just, I felt quite at home. Aesthetically, I didn't like the neighborhood. I didn't like all those big cell block buildings. I think it was Mitchell Lama buildings. The park blocks were beautiful, just beautiful. Broadway, I didn't like because it just looked like they threw the merchandise in the windows. So early on, I started saying, I, I think I want to live someplace else. I, I used to live east of uh, Columbus Avenue. Except for when I went to McHale's, the cell, it was under the stairs. Those are the hubs. These are great evenings. It's just wonderful. And the shame, of course, is that uh, none of those places, uh, you know, are there anymore. I know. Yeah. So it just, you know, makes us look back even more fondly at how rich a period that was and all that great music and great food and all. It was. 
Yeah. So the book weaves remembrances of your life growing up in New York City with your career and tells a detailed story of your romance with, with Miles Davis, who you met at the cellar while having dinner with your sister, Yvette. And your recall, Yvonne, of details is really amazing. I had forgotten that we used to have a Caribbean night at the cellar on Sundays until I heard it in your book again. I was like, did you keep a journal? Is that how you were able to remember all these things? So pinpoint? Through the years, I did do a lot of journaling. I have an excellent memory. I'm proud to say still is pretty good. Get a little shaky every time But I just re remember a lot of things vividly. And in, in doing the book, I was glad that I had journals. That particular night, I could just remember about everything. So describe, if you will, and you don't have to go into you know too much detail because you, you do it well in the book, but describe, if you will, the seller and the role a neighborhood place like that, that you frequented played, and then talk, if you will, about the night that you met Ma. As I mentioned in the book, how intimidated I was early on going into the cellar because you had the stairs and it was just so natural. You, you walk in, everyone looks up at you. I had these different approaches, maybe someone, I'm there to meet someone. So I'd look over the crowd. The best was coming in with someone, but a bunch of girlfriends or a date. And you walk in and I remember being glamorous. People used to dress and it was nice. Sometimes early in the evenings, the guys would all be all suited up because they'd just come in from the office. I remember uh, the pictures on the wall, like I would just stare at all of it. Every time I saw those pictures, it was, this, it, it was the first time I saw those pictures. The food was good. The staff was great. Vanessa Bell was working there. My friend Blue worked there. I mean, you know, all these interesting people working there and just being there. And then came Sunday night, Mother's Day. And it, I guess it changed my life. It gave me a great story. The Cellar was a famous restaurant with live music on some nights. It was owned by the elegant Howard Johnson. He and his equally as elegant son, Brad, knew how to treat their clientele. They each had a nice, gentlemanly way about them and looks to match. The decor of the Cellar reminded me of my Uncle Leonard's brown bedroom walls, except his walls were smooth. The Cellars looked like pockmarked skin a kind of stucco. It always seemed like nighttime inside. It was as if the room and any natural light had a mutual agreement never to see each other under any circumstances. Along the walls were black and white photographs of musicians that included Billie Holiday, Lester Young, John Coltrane, and Miles Davis. Yvette and I walked into the restaurant and down the three steps, something that always made everyone instantly look up. Some degree of confidence was necessary to make an entrance because a lack of it would be instantly noticed. I had several cellar entrances in my repertoire. When I was alone, a rare occurrence, I would frantically search the crowd for the imaginary person or persons waiting for me and lose myself in the thick of the crowd. With a well-mannered date, I would extend my hand so he could guide me safely down the steps. This was my most comfortable arrival. But with a few friends in tow, I'd boldly look into the air above the crowd, smile, and carry on with the evening. We started off with rum punches, and soon Sunday didn't seem so dreary. The air was festive. There were people at the bar, and mothers wearing all kinds of hats were seated at booths with their families. The food came, a bottle of white wine was opened, and all attention turned to having a fine time. As much as I wanted a good, spicy, warm meal, I chose a chef salad because I didn't want to walk around with a curry-stained cast for the next couple of weeks. It didn't take long for my salad to bore me, and my eyes started to wander across the room to the front of the entrance when a flash of orange caught my eye. I remember thinking Hare Krishna and going back to my salad. I think, Yvette whispered, Miles Davis just came in. He's with someone we know. Remember Eric? I did. He was one of those ubiquitous New Yorkers, an urban bohemian. That's impossible, I whispered back. Leo Maitland, my neighbor and a prominent doctor, had told me Miles hadn't left his house in a few years. He hasn't been out of his house in three years, I said, as if I were a Miles Davis expert. And it did, so you're there having dinner with you at its mother's day, and, and Miles comes in. Of course, he was always revered by those of us who love him. 
And the more I listen to his music, like my dad, as I get older and continue to listen to his music, it's just, I can't get enough. It's just like a beautiful painting every time I, I listen to Blue Sketches of Spain. So you, of course, recognized him when he walked in the cellar and you were smitten when he subsequently showed interest in you. Yet all throughout the relationship, as you share in your book, you had this inner dialogue going, as most of us do about, at least I know I do about most things, and certainly about relationships. And you tried and struggled at times to manage your heart in your head while under the spell of this icon, Miles Davis. Right. And you talk about getting high and snorting cocaine. I was like, what? Sweet Lily Moss snorted Oh, bluff. please. We're talking <laughs> South America. Remember, yeah, everybody was, they would spend $6 on a rum and coke at the bar and then go $50 of <laughs> cocaine. But what I wanted to ask you, Yvonne, is if you would, what is the extra layer of having a romantic relationship with someone as famous as Miles from the standpoint of the past, the pinch myself moment where, oh, I can't believe this famous guy is showing interest in me and of all the people in the world, this person like me, what's that added layer? Like, what was that like for you dating someone like Miles? Okay. But remember this is pre-internet and all of that. So it, it was quiet. Of course, when he drove up in his Ferrari, it wasn't so quiet to pick me up. But there was a layer that we had of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what I treasured. Just hanging out with him, watching television, just doing stuff like that. Uh, it, the house wasn't always full of people. He didn't want people around him too much. You know, they're always clawing at him. Of course, when he started, he had just come out of his three years seclusion at home. So when he walked in the restaurant, I saw a flash of orange and I, I saw him, but it didn't register until he dead said, I think Miles Davis just walked in. So then within seconds with Eric, he was at the head of the table in his orange jumpsuit. And then he sat down and finished my salad. I had finished it, but he finished it. Without a word, he sat down beside me in the booth and started to eat what was left of my now soggy salad. He ate it quickly without a sound and was oblivious to the commotion at our table. Fans stopped by to say hello and try to make him remember how they met him years ago with a friend through another friend in a club that used to be but wasn't anymore. Others stopped by just to look. He ignored them all and left the salad bowl clean. Then he leaned over and kissed me. I could feel the grease shining my lips. I wiped them with a napkin and left them with a matte finish. My action was neither gracious nor graceful. It was the automatic thing to do. What's wrong? You think I have herpes or something? He got up and left. I didn't know what to say or do to make him stay. He disappeared into the crowd, leaving me with a story. Miles Davis sat down and ate my salad and gave me a greasy kiss. Oh well, I thought. That's that. Gave me a greasy kiss and all that. And, and then it, it took off from there. I know I'm skipping some things because I want people to be sure to listen. But I, I really treasured to this day the, the quiet moments we had. When it wasn't about fame, it was just about him. And sometimes we would be silent for quite a, some time just looking at each other. Or maybe I was reading something or just... I, I like the quietude of it. It wasn't a noisy relationship. The noise came from outside, the chatter. I think you often speak with your dad during the course of the book and relate some of those conversations. And I, I wonder with each person that we were involved, whether they're famous or not, high powered or high strung, there, there right. are different personalities that we have to adjust to in order to be compatible. This compromise, right? Yeah. And with someone like Miles, who is eccentric and extremely talented and famous, and you've got all of these ingredients in the gumbo that make it very unique. And here you are, this professional woman, very mild mannered and etiquette prone and, and polite. And you're trying to manage your emotions, your head, this famous guy, how to be in his life. It was definitely a little bit more complicated than perhaps dating somebody who had a day job at IBM. Oh, definitely. That was challenging. And around that time, I got a very nice job at a very good agency. 
Now, I wasn't in show business, and I can't speak on all of Miles's girlfriends if they were in show business, but I, I was a businesswoman. I had a job in an ad agency, and he would be very proud of that and tell people what I did. Devon has a good job and tell the whole room how much money I was making. And so the challenge was to maintain my career and maintain this crazy, unpredictable relationship. So what I learned how to do is put him in a compartment because he would disappear or I, I don't know, so his moods would swing. And I said, okay, I got to keep my head on straight because I have to do this job. So between my job and then taking care of my little sister, along with my other siblings, which she stayed with me, I had things to do. I, I have a career to manage. And in a way, I think he, res I know he respected that. I know he did. As a matter of fact, he found the babysitter for my sister. He said, oh, you're just going to overpay someone. I'll take care of this. And he found the babysitter. So when he was with me, he was with me. And when he had to go and be famous, that's when the walls would come up. In a way, I think it saved you too, because you had your own thing that was important to you. You weren't going to just be completely caught up in, you know, is Miles loving me today or not? I you had to work the next day. But all of you also come away, though, along with the um, impression that Miles had real feelings for you, and then perhaps he loves you and then as best as Miles was capable of. Oh, my God, I shouted. It's a ring. He gave me a ring. Yvonne, it's beautiful, she said. You deserve it. I agreed and immediately put it on my left hand. The design of the ring was a snake with two emerald eyes, it was a little big for my left ring finger, but I hadn't even considered putting it on my right hand. The snake's head kept moving. It was never where it should have been. I liked snake rings. He gave me a ring, I yelled to my sister. Miles gave me a ring. I was too giddy to hear anything she or anyone else said. I tried calling Chicken, but the line was busy. After a few more tries, I got through. Chicken, today Miles sent a ring to my office. You should see it. I saw it already. How? I went with him to the jewelry store. He's going to marry you. Chicken, come on, be honest. Tell me everything. I was with him when he told his lawyer about you. Go on, go on. He told him how nice you are and sweet, and then we went to the jewelry store. He bought that ring and then ordered a diamond ring for you. Inside, he had it engraved to say, Mrs. Miles Davis. I would have preferred Mrs. Yvonne Davis, but this I kept to myself. I told you if something's for you, you'll get it. All that crying you've been doing for nothing. Chicken, my own dear Abby. The shine of the ring and the moment dulled briefly when I asked him where Miles was. Chicken told me he was staying with his friend, and he'll call him to tell him to call me. Miles called minutes later. Thank you. It's so beautiful. I love snake rings. Thank you. A friend used to wear thin snake rings stacked, and I loved the way they looked on his finger, especially the different colors of eyes. There were rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. That's what I'll do, I thought to myself. I'll stack them up. When are we going to see each other? I asked. I'll come by this weekend. I have some things to do. Come by and eat. I'll make a curry. I'd never made one, but I was going to learn because I knew that's what he liked. Once he took me to a little Indian restaurant on 125th Street. The owners were thrilled to see him, and they knew what he liked. Food appeared in front of us, and Miles picked up a fork and started feeding me. Pointing the fork at me, he said, You see? I'll take care of you. Well, his actions certainly showed me that he cared about me. And the things he would say, it's like, it's funny looking back when he would call me one call after another, and I was actually hanging up on him. And then he kept calling, I think purposely, and finally I took, unplugged the phone, plugged the phone in, and he would call to me. It was like crazy, but... I always say, it's easy to say, I love you, but to show love, that's a whole nother thing. And he showed love for me. Like, 
sending a, a fruit basket to make sure my colleagues had something to eat if they came in. Making sure I had something on my skin was out when I was outside. Feeding me. He used to feed me because he didn't think I ate enough. The sections of the book were, were very visual and really touching. And it's great to see that side of the Miles Davis that a lot of us have not heard about before. So I, I, I really enjoy that. So on the food note, you were a regular at Rails, and I've never been there. And I, of course, heard the, you know, know all about the mystique. They even have one in Los Angeles now, but you were on a first name basis with the owner of the major With Frank, team. yeah. Frank wasn't the, the fancy owner that he was working. His aunt and uncle were in the kitchen. So what's the mystique about Rails? How would you distill that? Let's talk about the food. It was simple Italian food. It was not overwrought. No one stood at your table, tells you what they did with the garlic or what they rolled the salt in. The people, oh, we double baked this up. It was just good, simple, I would say Southern Italian food. But I, I didn't know a lot of the players in the room. I'm with, they were the advertising people. And then I would call for my own reservation. I get you in three weeks. Okay, three weeks it is. And you could pay by check. I used to go up there quite a bit. And then it became this place where people were literally owning their tables. And that's when I said, well, let me get off this bus. <laughs> I'm not all of that. Have you been to Rails lately? No, like I haven't been in years. I, I don't think I've been since I've been back from Italy for sure. I did see Frank before he died at Marcus's place. They were, they were doing Harlem Eat Up first year and he was there. And he introduced my, himself to myself. Oh, I know you. I'm Yvonne, the copywriter, because that's how it's, hi, Frank, this is Yvonne, the copywriter, the black woman. He said, yeah, I know you. I know who you are. And that's when he would give me a table three weeks from then. But it was pretty special. Yeah, that's the room I always wanted to get into. Maybe I'll be able to go to see the one in, in Los Angeles. As we're winding down here, Yvonne, you've written on the future of New York City and given the impact of the pandemic, there's been a lot of movement to uh, some folks have left the cities, folks have left big cities. I know Los Angeles has lost some folks and life changed for quite a while there. And I think we're all still in recovery and, and wondering what the next week's going to look like and the, and the coming year's going to look like. But when you, and you've got a new mayor now in New York, mm -hmm. um, I, I just wonder from your standpoint, do you feel the energy of the city returning to to the New York that we all know and love. What's your take on New York and its future? Well, I'm always, I'm a social animal, so it was doubly hard. I had three different pods during the shutdown, groups of friends, and they were all lovely. I, I could feel the energy. I've been to the theater quite a bit. I've been going to uh, openings. I've been going to cocktail. But for me, I'm back. A lot of my friends are back. I, I, it's never going to be the same. And sometimes when I'm just sitting here saying, I can't believe I've lived through a pandemic. I've walked out of my house and no one was on the street. I've been to Rockefeller Plaza and no one was there. It was like another world and it was heavy. It was so heavy. I believe in New York and we'll be back and better. I believe that too. The book is quite the contrary, available on Audible. It's authored by guest today on Durant. Yvonne, again, I loved the book. And uh, thank, thank you very much, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Pleasure. Welcome, folks, once again to the segment that we call How We Move with my dear friend and Bassett Spaz. What's going on? It's going on for sure. I mean, listening to that the last hour, I felt like I was like riding in tow. <laughs> you took the Broadway local train and stopped at Hattie Street. All the stops. So you get off at each stop because you know some. That's how it felt as she was reflecting and stepping. And she's just a little bit older, but I knew the circle and in and around it. And also the cross of who would meet. So when you made the, the reference to someone that would be of her orientation, mild-mannered, simplistic, focused, serious. Of course, the twain meets in New York because we're all there, right? Whether it's the eating spot or the, the red light waiting to cross, the likelihood is you're going to meet folks. If you happen to be at a concert at Central Park or whatever, that's what happens on the way to work, on the, on the way to, to the cleaners, 
is the cross-section of people that come together and they don't always match, may not look like you, but it be you. <laughs> if you happen to be in that circumference in that neighborhood, we are of we. I mean, that's how that happens. And what's even more significant is when you can just add decades onto the reflection of how people are in your life. It's just really quite a special thing. That's why I was riding in tow. As the two of you would talk and reflect and bring things up. And when she and I spoke briefly and she reminded me, she, we shared a table at one of your former guests, Susan Taylor's galas. And I thought that's how small that world is. And it's not just being at an event, it's being at an event supporting someone else. She was referring to that, that you gave at that event. No, it wasn't at that event. It was for the homegoing ceremony of Sir Percy Sutton. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. That I spoke at Mr. Sutton's funeral. The thing that also, you know, I, I think about is we talked about having known the patriarch or the matriarch of that family and now seeing the children as we've got older and become the adult in the room. Someone like Stanley Nelson, the documentary filmmaker, the success he's had. The Maitlands, Tracy Maitland is a wildly successful banker. So many of those names of folks that we knew from those communities that we're still in touch with, Marie Brown, so we've also had on the show. We, I just don't feel like we hear enough about them. Or, or even the seeds that were planted. We've moved on to something else moving fast because as we speak, I believe her title is, is Assemblywoman. She's Percy Sutton's granddaughter, Keisha Sutton James. And while it would seem likely that she'd be in that role, it was what has emerged. It's her calling. It's not just because it is the last name. It's her calling to serve and in that capacity. And she's probably just in her 40s, but may follow the path of her, not just her grandfather, but her great uncles. So how you plant that seed really does emerge. And when you speak about like the Durant twins, and while they have different professional lives and while they look just alike, the root self of courtesy, foundation, protocol is what offers a compass in their respective lives. Yeah. Those kinds of things, when I heard them even talk about it before, it was another echo. And so you really start to think about the era and the times. I think we were all given the rules of how to tend to a garden, how you should act when you walk out, the, the politeness, the courtesy, the respect whether you like the lady up the block or not, you were not to, to be rude. It was not commonplace like we do now to just throw caution to the wind. You had to have some kind of, because someone was talking about my dad once, they talked about how frank he was. I said, but if you watch his interviews, even if the interviewer was not someone who agreed with him or he with them, he was always very polite. To your point there, I think that that, was certainly resonating with me when I think about you, know, the art of listening and giving the other person a chance to say what it is that they want to say before you trample all over their words with your own comeback or whatever. And it does feel like that part, certainly on a national level between our, our parties, that there's a problem with that, but even with ourselves, it is. You're in the middle of a conversation with somebody, their phone buzzes and right in the middle of your sentence, they go to check the message and you're the live person in front of them, yet the buzzing on the phone somehow takes precedence. It's funny. So there are different reasons I find, but because I am a listener, I can also, when I'm exuberant, talk a lot about a thing. So I started to take into consideration when people don't seem to be listening, is it the enthusiasm of getting the information out and just sharing it? Or is it someone who just really doesn't see you and they just need to talk and you could swap seats with somebody and they wouldn't have known that you moved at all. So I've, I've listened to or taken into, into consideration the various kinds of people who seem to be preoccupied with their own moment. And is that moment just enthusiastic with the interest of airing it all or venting? Sometimes a person just simply needs to vent and needs the listener. Right. So it's really taking into consideration or giving thought to whom you're speaking to, what's really going on. So we then become the listener. We, we're the ones who have to assess what's going on and what's needed. When I take people abroad, it can be even across the country or preparing someone for a meeting or an exchange, but certainly out of the country. One of the things in my cover letter is listening. Don't 
um, um, impart all of your stuff. Don't go from your concrete to someone else's soil, thinking that everything you've experienced is all that one has to glean to make their lives better. But the truth of the matter is there's a rhythm wherever you go. There's music wherever you go. There's a sound. There's a pace wherever you go. And that it will reveal what it needs. So when we're trying to be kind and rescue with shift a culture and make it recognizable to us, you want to say, no, actually there's this. And if only we pause long enough, like the last couple of years has allowed, we'll realize that we also have that music in our bones. We had just forsaken it. We also have that yearning um, for camaraderie. We've just forsaken it. We also get a lot out of not being technological all day. We've just lost that. And so when you get to spend a few days someplace and shift, and I get people languages, little codes, so by day three, four, wherever they are, they're going to be speaking some aspect of the language, understanding the food, how you eat, I mean, who eats first. People forget that maybe it's the host that should break the bread first or the elder who should start first. All of those kinds of customs and courtesies and protocols are key. You had me at don't go from your concrete to someone else's soil. Wow. That's, that's the title for a book. <laughs> I used to say to people, don't, when you leave all that stuff at the gate, we usually take two flights to get to a restaurant that lasts to another country, leave that last debris at the gate. Don't bring that stuff into someone else's uh, house, so to speak. And that's it's how we move, how we listen, how we speak, how we pay attention. <laughs> and and congratulations on your on your guest today. I'm really excited about reading her book and understanding the journey. But I have to say what was most resonant to me is her reference to just having that grid, how she moves. Thank you, Ambassador. And I will see you soon. Very soon, my dear. <laughs>